Section 40 of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daniel Fedrigo. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter 13, Part 4. Ursula felt her heart fail inside her. Why must she grasp all this? Why must she force learning on fifty-five reluctant children, having all the time an ugly, rude jealousy behind her, ready to throw her to the mercy of the herd of children, who would like to rend her as a weaker representative of authority? A great dread of her task possessed her. She saw Mr. Brunt, Miss Harby, Miss Schofield, all the school teachers, drudging unwillingly at the graceless task of compelling many children into one disciplined mechanical set, reducing the whole set to an automatic state of obedience and attention, and then of commanding their acceptance of various pieces of knowledge. The first great task was to reduce sixty children to one state of mind or being. This state must be produced automatically, through the will of the teacher, and the will of the whole school authority, imposed upon the will of the children. The point was that the headmaster and the teachers should have one will in authority, which should bring the will of the children into accord. But the headmaster was narrow and exclusive. The will of the teachers could not agree with his. Their separate wills refused to be so subordinated. So there was a state of anarchy, leaving the final judgment to the children themselves which authority should exist. So there existed a set of separate wills, each straining itself to the utmost to exert its own authority. Children will never naturally acquiesce to sitting in a class and submitting to knowledge. They must be compelled by a stronger, wiser will, against which will they must always strive to revolt. So that the first great effort of every teacher of a large class must be to bring the will of the children into accordance with his own will. And this he can only do by an abnegation of his personal self and an application of a system of laws for the purpose of achieving a certain calculable result, the imparting of certain knowledge. Whereas Ursula thought she was going to become the first wise teacher by making the whole business personal and using no compulsion, she believed entirely in her own personality, so that she was in a very deep mess. In the first place, she was offering to a class a relationship which only one or two of the children were sensitive enough to appreciate, so that the mass were left outsiders, therefore against her. Secondly, she was placing herself in a passive antagonism to the one fixed authority of Mr. Harvey, so the scholars could more safely harry her. She did not know, but her instinct gradually warned her. She was tortured by the voice of Mr. Brunt. On it went, jarring, harsh, full of hate, but so monotonous. It nearly drove her mad. Always the same set, harsh monotony. The man was becoming a mechanism working on and on and on. But the personal man was in subdued friction all the time. It was horrible, all hate. Must she be like this? She could feel the ghastly necessity. She must become the same, put away the personal self, become an instrument, an abstraction, working upon a certain material, the class, to achieve a set purpose of making them know so much each day. And she could not submit, yet gradually she felt the invincible iron closing upon her. The sun was being blocked out. Often when she went out at playtime and saw a luminous blue sky with changing clouds, it seemed like a fantasy, like a piece of painted scenery. Her heart was so black and tangled in the teaching, her personal self was shut in prison, abolished. She was subject to a bad, destructive will. How, then, could the sky be shining? There was no sky, there was no luminous atmosphere of out-of-doors. Only the inside of the school was real, hard, concrete, real, and vicious. She would not yet, however, let school quite overcome her. She always said, it is not a permanency, it will come to an end. She could always see herself beyond the place, see the time when she had left it. On Sundays and on holidays, when she was away at Kazde, or in the woods where the beech leaves were fallen, she could think of St. Philip's Church School, and by an effort of will put it in the picture as a dirty little low-squatting building that made a very tiny mound under the sky, while the great beech woods spread immense about her, and the afternoon was spacious and wonderful. 
Moreover, the children, the scholars, they were insignificant little objects, far away, oh, far away. And what power had they over her free soul? A fleeting thought of them as she kicked her way through the beech leaves, and they were gone. But her will was tense against them all the time. All the while they pursued her, she had never had such a passionate love of the beautiful things about her. Sitting on top of the tram car at evening, sometimes school was swept away as she saw a magnificent sky settling down, and her breast, her very hands, clamored for the lovely flare of sunset. It was poignant, almost to agony, her reaching for it. She almost cried aloud seeing the sun down so lovely, for she was held away. It was no matter how she said to herself that school existed no more once she had left it, it existed. It was within her like a dark weight controlling her movement. It was in vain the high-spirited, proud young girl flung off the school in its association with her. She was Miss Bragwin. She was Standard 5 teacher. She had her most important being in her work now. Constantly haunting her like a darkness hovering over her heart and threatening to swoop down over it at every moment was the sense that somehow, somehow she was brought down. Bitterly, she denied unto herself that she was really a schoolteacher. Leave that to Violet Harbys. She herself would stand clear of the accusation. It was in vain she denied it. Within herself, some recording hand seemed to point mechanically to a negation. She was incapable of fulfilling her task. She could never for a moment escape from the fatal weight of the knowledge. And so she felt inferior to Violet Harvey. Miss Harvey was a splendid teacher. She could keep order and inflict knowledge on a class with remarkable efficiency. It was no good Ursula's protesting to herself that she was infinitely, infinitely the superior of Violet Harvey. She knew that Violet Harvey succeeded where she failed. And this in a task which was almost a test of her. She felt something all the time wearing upon her, wearing her down. She went about it in these first weeks, trying to deny it, to say she was free as ever. She tried not to feel at a disadvantage before Miss Harvey, tried to keep up the effect of her own superiority. But a great weight was on her, which Violet Harvey could bear, and she herself could not. Though she did not give in, she never succeeded. Her class was getting in worse condition, she knew herself less and less secure in teaching. Ought she to withdraw and go home again? Ought she to say she had come to the wrong place and so retire? Her very life was at test. She went on doggedly, blindly, waiting for a crisis. Mr. Harvey had now begun to persecute her. Her dread and hatred of him grew and loomed larger and larger. She was afraid he was going to bully her and destroy her. He began to persecute her because she could not keep her class in proper condition, because her class was the weak link in the chain which made up the school. One of the offenses was that her class was noisy and disturbed Mr. Harvey as he took standard seven at the other end of the room. She was taking composition on a certain morning, walking in among the scholars. Some of the boys had dirty ears and necks. Their clothing smelled unpleasantly, but she could ignore it. She corrected the writing as she went. When you say, their fur is brown, how do you write there? She asked. There was a little pause. The boys were always jeeringly backward in answering. They had begun to jeer at her authority altogether. Please, miss, T-H-E-I-R, spelled a lad loudly with a note of mockery. At that moment, Mr. Harvey was passing. Stand up, Hill, he called in a big voice. Everybody started. Ursula watched the boy. He was evidently poor and rather cunning. A stiff bit of hair stood straight off his forehead. The rest fitted close to his meager head. He was pale and colorless. Who told you to call out, thundered Mr. Harvey. The boy looked up and down with a guilty air and a cunning, cynical reserve. "'Please, sir, I was answering,' he replied, with the same humble insolence. "'Go to my desk.' The boy set off down the room, the big black jacket hanging in dejected folds about him, his thin legs rather knocked at the knees, going already with the pauper's crawl, his feet in their big boots scarcely lifted. Ursula watched him in his crawling, slinking progress down the room. He was one of her boys. When he got to the desk, he looked round, half furtively, 
with a sort of cunning grin and a pathetic leer at the big boys in Standard 7. Then, pitiable, pale in his dejected garments, he lounged under the menace of the headmaster's desk, with one thin leg crooked at the knee and the foot struck out sideways, his hand in the low-hanging pockets of his man's jacket. Ursula tried to get her attention back to the class. The boy gave her a little horror, and she was at the same time hot with pity for him. She felt she wanted to scream. She was responsible for the boy's punishment. Mr. Harvey was looking at her handwriting on the board. He turned to the class. Pens down. The children put down their pens and looked up. Fold arms. They pushed back their books and folded arms. Ursula, stuck among the back forms, could not extricate herself. What is your composition about? asked the headmaster. Every hand shut up. The, stuttered some voice in his eagerness to answer. I wouldn't advise you to call out, said Mr. Harvey. He would have a pleasant voice, full and musical, but for the detestable menace that always tailed in it. He stood unmoved, his eyes twinkling under his bushy black eyebrows, watching the class. There was something fascinating in him, as he stood, and again she wanted to scream. She was all jarred. She did not know what she felt. Well, Alice, he said. The rabbit, piped a girl's voice. A very easy subject for Standard 5. Ursula felt a slight shame of incompetence. She was exposed before the class, and she was tormented by the contradictoriness of everything. Mr. Harvey stood so strong and so male, with his black brows and clear forehead, the heavy jaw, the big overhanging mustache, such a man, with strength and male power, and a certain blind native beauty. She might have liked him as a man. And here he stood, in some other capacity, bullying over such a trifle as a boy speaking out without permission. He was not a little fussy man. He seemed to have some cruel, stubborn, evil spirit. He was imprisoned in a task too small and petty for him, which yet, in a servile acquiescence, he would fulfill, because he had to earn his living. He had no finer control over himself, only this blind, dogged, wholesale will. He would keep the job going, since he must, and this job was to make the children spell the word caution correctly and put a capital letter after a full stop. So at this he hammered with his suppressed hatred, always suppressing himself, till he was beside himself. Ursula suffered bitterly as he stood, short and handsome and powerful, teaching her class. It seemed such a miserable thing for him to be doing. He had a decent, powerful, rude soul. What did he care about the composition on The Rabbit? Yet his will kept him there before the class, threshing the trivial subject. It was habit with him now, to be so little and vulgar out of place. She saw the shamefulness of his position, felt the fettered wickedness in him, which would blaze out into evil rage in the long run, so that he was like a persistent, strong creature tethered. It was really intolerable. The jarring was torture to her. She looked over the silent, attentive class that seemed to have crystallized into order and rigid, neutral form. This he had in his power to do, to crystallize the children into hard, mute fragments, fixed under his will, his brute will, which fixed them by sheer force. She too must learn to subdue them to her will. She must, for it was her duty. Since the school was such, he crystallized the class into order, but to see him, a strong, powerful man, using all his power for such a purpose, seemed almost horrible. There was something hideous about it. The strange, genial light in his eyes was really vicious and ugly. His smile was one of torture. He could not be impersonal. He could not have a clear, pure purpose. He could only exercise his own brute will. He did not believe the least in the education he kept inflicting year after year upon the children. So he must bully, only bully, even while it tortured his strong, wholesome nature with shame like a spur always galling. He was so blind and ugly and out of place. Ursula could not bear it as he stood there. The whole situation was wrong and ugly. The lesson was finished. Mr. Harvey went away. At the far end of the room, she heard the whistle and the thud of the cane. Her heart stood still within her. She could not bear it. No, she could not bear it when the boy was beaten. It made her sick. 
She felt that she must go out of this school, this torture place, and she hated the schoolmaster, thoroughly and finally. The brute, had he no shame? He should never be allowed to continue the atrocity of this bullying cruelty. Then Hill came crawling back, blubbering piteously. There was something desolate about this blubbering that nearly broke her heart. For after all, if she had kept her class in proper discipline, this would never have happened. Hill would never have been called out and been caned. She began the arithmetic lesson, but she was distracted. The boy Hill sat away on the back of the desk, huddled up, blubbering and sucking his hand. It was a long time. She dared not go near nor speak to him. She felt ashamed before him, and she felt she could not forgive the boy for being the huddled, blubbering object, all wet and sniveled, which he was. She went on correcting the sums, but there were too many children. She could not get around the class, and Hill was on her conscience. At last he had stopped crying and sat bunched over his hands, playing quietly. When he looked up at her, his face was dirty with tears. His eyes had a curious washed look, like the sky after rain, a sort of wanness. He bore no malice. He had already forgotten and was waiting to be restored to the normal position. "'Go on with your work, Hill,' she said. The children were playing over their arithmetic and, she knew, cheating thoroughly. She wrote another sum on the blackboard. She could not get round the class. She went again to the front to watch. Some were ready, some were not. What was she to do? At last, it was time for recreation. She gave the order to cease working and in some way or other got her class out of the room. Then she faced the disorderly litter of blotted, uncorrected books, of broken rulers and chewed pens, and her heart sank in sickness. The misery was getting deeper. The trouble went on and on, day after day. She'd always piles of books to mark, myriads of errors to correct, a heart-wearying task that she loathed, and the work got worse and worse. When she tried to flatter herself that the composition grew more alive, more interesting, she had to see that the handwriting grew more and more slovenly, the books more filthy and disgraceful. She tried what she could, but it was of no use. But she was not going to take it seriously. Why should she? Why should she say to herself that it mattered if she failed to teach a class to write perfectly neatly? Why should she take the blame unto herself? Payday came, and she received four pounds, two shillings, and one penny. She was very proud that day. She never had so much money before, and she had earned it all herself. She sat on the top of the tram car, fingering the gold and fearing she might lose it. She felt so established and strong because of it. And when she got home, she said to her mother, It is payday today, mother. Ah, said her mother coolly. Then Ursula put down fifty shillings on the table. That is my board, she said. Ah, said her mother, letting it lie. Ursula was hurt, yet she had paid her scot. She was free. She paid for what she had. There remained, moreover, thirty-two shillings of her own. She would not spend any. She, who was naturally a spendthrift, because she could not bear to damage her fine gold. She had a standing ground now, apart from her parents. She was something else besides the mere daughter of William and Anna Brangwen. She was independent. She earned her own living. She was an important member of the working community. She was sure the fifty shillings a month quite paid for her keep. If her mother received fifty shillings a month for each of the children, she would have twenty pounds a month and no clothes to provide. Very well, then. Ursula was independent of her parents. She now adhered elsewhere. Now the Board of Education was a phrase that rang significant to her, and she felt Whitehall far beyond her as her ultimate home. In the government, she knew which minister had supreme control over education, and it seemed to her that in some way he was connected with her, as her father was connected with her. She had another self, another responsibility. She was no longer Ursula Brangwen, daughter of William Brangwen. She was also Standard 5 teacher in St. Philip's School, and it was a case now of being Standard 5 teacher, and nothing else. She could not escape. Neither could she succeed. That was her horror. As the weeks passed on, there was no Ursula Brangwen free and jolly, there was only a girl of that name obsessed by the fact that she could not manage her class of children. At week's ends, there came days of passionate reaction, when she went mad with the taste of liberty, 
when merely to be free in the morning to sit down at her embroidery and stitch the colored silks was a passion of delight, for the prison house was always awaiting her. This was only a respite, as her chained heart knew well, so that she seized hold of the swift hours of the weekend and wrung the last drop of sweetness out of them in a little cruel frenzy. She did not tell anybody how this state was a torture to her. She did not confide either in Gudrun or to her parents, how horrible she found it to be a schoolteacher. But when Sunday night came, and she felt the Monday morning at hand, she was strung up tight with dreadful anticipation because the strain and the torture was near again. She did not believe that she could ever teach that great brutish class in that brutal school ever, ever. And yet if she failed, she must in some way go under. She must admit that the man's world was too strong for her. She could not take her place in it. She must go down before Mr. Harvey. In all her life henceforth, she must go on, never having freed herself of the man's world, never having achieved the freedom of the great world of responsible work. Maggie had taken her place there. She had even stood level with Mr. Harvey and got free of him, and her soul was always wandering in far-off valleys and glades of poetry. Maggie was free. Yet there was something like subjection in Maggie's very freedom. Mr. Harvey, the man, disliked the reserved woman, Maggie. Mr. Harvey, the schoolmaster, respected his teacher, Miss Schofield. For the present, however, Ursula only envied and admired Maggie. She herself had still to go where Maggie had got. She had still to make her footing. She had taken up a position on Mr. Harvey's ground, and she must keep it. For he was now beginning a regular attack on her to drive her away out of his school. She could not keep order. Her class was a turbulent crowd and the weak spot in the school's work. Therefore, she must go. And someone more useful must come in her place. Someone who could keep discipline. The headmaster had worked himself into an obsession of fury against her. He only wanted her gone. She had come. She had got worse as the weeks went on. She was absolutely no good. His system which was his very life in school, the outcome of his bodily movement was attacked and threatened at the point where Ursula was included. She was the danger that threatened his body with a blow, a fall, and blindly, thoroughly, moving from strong instinct of opposition, he set to work to expel her. When he punished one of her children as he had punished the boy Hill, it was an offense against himself. He made the punishment extra heavy with the significance that the extra stroke came in because of the weak teacher who allowed all these things to be. When he punished for an offense against her, he punished lightly, as if offenses against her were not significant, which all the children knew, and they behaved accordingly. End of section 40.